Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. So this summer, uh, we had the opportunity as a family to go on a little bit of a vacation to Washington, D.C., And if you were to ask my children what their favorite part of it was, they would most certainly say learning the subway system uh, there in D.C. and navigating that. And I'd be very proud because the apple has not fallen far from the tree in that way. Uh, But I would not say that that was my favorite part. My favorite part was we got to go for the first time uh, to the National Smithsonian uh, Museum of African American History. Uh, And it was the first time we had got a chance to go. And the architecture, the way that that museum is designed and set up physically is absolutely amazing. Because what happens is you go in, you enter into the building, and then you get on an elevator and you go four stories deep underground. And so as you go through and experience the history that the museum presents, you are slowly rising back to ground level. Uh, the, the metaphor is easy to see and it's beautiful as you go through the museum to be able to see the rise and the change. And then when you come through, when you get up to the present day, um, as you leave the main exhibit, there is a reflecting room. And this room is beautiful and it's, I don't know the difference between granite and marble, but it's one of those things. And there's water that sort of comes in and has a a beautiful silence for you to spend time reflecting on what you've just seen, reflecting on the journey that you've just been on. And around the sort of four different walls, there are four different quotes from different civil rights leaders. And the one by Dr. King is actually a place where he was applying the message of the passage that we're going to be looking at today. It's the climax of Exodus, he expresses this longing for justice to roll down like a mighty river, for righteousness to be like an unstoppable river. And I can just remember being in that room after going through the history of the African-American experience in the United States and then reflecting on that verse, I was struck. And I think a lot of people are as they go to that place. But as we look at this in the context of Amos, it's even more striking. It's even more striking because Amos is showing us that all of our religious activity amounts to nothing if it is disconnected from an encounter with God. Amos shows that the people of Israel, they they had their worship and their ethical lives. They wanted to disconnect them, but God sees those things as deeply connected. The Bible everywhere assumes that worship and justice go hand in hand. Justice without worship is virtue signaling. Worship without justice is hypocrisy. And so this passage is a shocking one. It's meant to wake us up out of our false assumptions and all of our fake worship. Amos wants us to see that what we do on Sunday morning should matter for what happens in our lives on Tuesday afternoon, that those things are connected But it's so easy for us to sever that connection. It's so easy for us to forget, compartmentalize our worship and the way that we live. But Amos and God himself wants nothing to do with that. God wants our whole lives lifted up as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him. So I'm going to be reading Amos 5, 18 through 27. Uh, So if you are able, I'd ask that you'd please stand as I read this. The words will be on the screen behind me. 
Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feast. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikketh, your king, and Kion, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. City Church is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. Amos begins this passage by correcting an idea that the people had about who God was and what was happening in their land. False prophets had had come before Amos, and these false prophets all had the same message, which is this, everything is fine. Everything is going to be okay. No, don't worry about a thing, because every little thing is going to be all right. That's what the message of these prophets were. The people were living however they wanted. They could see Assyria massing on the border to the north of them. They could see the problems coming. And the false prophets just assured them, don't worry about it. You're God's chosen people. Nothing bad will ever happen to you. And so Amos wants to subvert this popular view of the people. He wants to wake them up from these false assumptions that every little thing is going to be all right. Why do you desire the day of the Lord? He asked them. You think that's going to be a good thing? As we mentioned, the the people of Israel, Amos has been comparing them to the Egyptians throughout this book. And they are living just like the oppressors that they had been freed from. And he says, listen, the day of the Lord, because you're doing this, is going to be terrible for you. It's going to be a very bad day. You are straight up not going to have a good time. And to drive this point home, to make sure that they understand it, he tells a story. And the story that he tells is comical. Amos is being sarcastic. He says, imagine you were out in the field. And as you were out in the field, you saw a lion. And you ran away from the lion. And you thought everything was okay. And then, just when you thought everything was okay, there was a bear. But don't worry. You're able to get away from the bear and get back to your house. And as soon as you get in the door, and as soon as the adrenaline starts to go out of your bloodstream, as soon as you start to sort of exhale, you lean for some steadiness against the wall. And just when you reach your hand out to touch that wall, a poisonous snake bites you and you die. That's the story that he tells. It's, it's meant to sarcastically wake them up. This is a, the kind of cutting jokes that have the edge of truth. And the people of Israel think that their actions have no consequences. They can just keep doing whatever they're doing. They think that they can live like Egyptians and get all of the benefits of being one of God's people. 
So they imagine that they're immune from the attacks from Assyria. They imagine that nothing bad is going to happen. But Amos has been, been screaming sometimes literally at them for the past five chapters, wake up. No, if you keep doing this, it's going to be bad. If you keep doing this, God is going to treat you like the Egyptians you're acting like. Last week, we saw uh, how God used the Passover to sort of tell them what he was going to do to them. In, in this passage, he does the same thing with the ninth plague. He says, the day of the Lord is going to be darkness, just like the darkness that I put on the land of Egypt. It's going to be gloom. It's going to be sadness. It is going to be a shocking reversal of your fortunes. But the people of Israel don't want to listen to Amos. They say, I'm sorry, I can't hear you over how loud we have cranked up our worship songs. They are busy going down to the places where they worship God. They're busy with all of the feasts that began in the Exodus story. And the words of the true and living God are being drowned out by the noise of their false practice and dead religion. Whatever else was the case, whatever other idolatry the people of Israel got into, they, for some reason, kept going down and celebrating the three pilgrim feasts. Now, they wouldn't go to Jerusalem. They didn't like where Jerusalem was at. So they went to other places. They went to Gilgal. But the problem was that these feasts had become parodies of what they were intended for. And Amos, speaking for God, doesn't mince words. Look at how he describes it, starting in verse 21. I hate and despise your feast. I take no delight when you get together. I will not accept your offerings. I won't even look at them. And the sound of your songs has become like nails on a chalkboard. A sound that like just thinking about it visibly makes us cringe. And Amos turns all of their assumptions on their head. They think everything is fine. Everything is going well. They think that what they're doing in worship is beautiful, but it's worse than nails on a chalkboard. It's teeth on a chalkboard. Throughout the Old Testament, the sacrifices that the people made were said to be a sweet-smelling aroma to God. And that was a very visible and tangible picture that you would get as you went to the temple. The other day, I was returning a tool to a friend of mine's house. And as soon as I walked in his back gate in his backyard... I smelled something. It was, it was before I even got into his yard. And I knew, I knew that he had been up early that morning smoking a Wagyu brisket. And it was the most delicious smelling air that you could ever possibly imagine as this, as this meat, so, sorry for our vegans uh, here. Um, I'm just going to press into this illustration though. Um, <laughs> Because you could just smell the meat and the, the fat rendering as it slowly smoked all the day. As this, this pleasant aroma just sort of wafted through the air of the neighborhood. Something that would truly bring all the boys to the yard. <laughs> That's what the temple would have smelled like. That sweet smell of roasting meat with fat. That smell that is just so good that makes your mouth water just thinking about it. That's what the temple would have smelled like. But God says, instead of smelling the flame roasted meat, all I can smell is burnt popcorn covered in burnt hair. He, he, he just describes this as just something wretched and offensive. The thing that was supposed to be so good, he says, is so bad. The people of Israel's religious practices were gross. 
And that's how God saw them. And that's what God said about them. To be sure, their religion was dutiful. They kept going three times a year. It was expensive. It's expensive to give up a cow from your flock. They were apparently wholehearted. The people were really giving it a go. They were emotionally satisfying, but they were completely devoid of God and any of his attention. The thing that should have been sweet and beautiful had become a grotesque imitation of the real thing. Their religion was margarine. Their devotion to God was decaf coffee. Why? And this is important because they couldn't see their own sin. It's interesting that in all the things that God mentions that they were doing, going to these feasts, having these different types of offerings and all these different sacrifices, there's one that is conspicuously missing. Never once does it mention that they did a sin offering. The people operated under the assumption that everything was fine and that they didn't need to be reconciled to God. It, it reminds me a little bit, uh, one of my favorite bands is a band called The Wonder Years, and they have an album called No Closer to Heaven, which is the lead singer, the lyricist, working through a friend of his who passed away. And throughout this album, in four or five different tracks, the background singers all repeat a line over and over again. And it's sometimes connected to the song, sometimes it doesn't seem like it is, but this line is almost the theme of the album, and the line is this, there's no saviors if we can't see our problems. That's the people of Israel. They didn't need a savior, they thought, because they refused to look at their own sin. Their religion was devoid of any sense of who they were. And they would only listen to prophets who told them that they were fine and their best was yet to come. And God was, had blessing for them right around the corner when he didn't. The day of the Lord is darkness. The day of the Lord is gloom. The day of the Lord was coming for them. Now, beloved, we need to turn this around on ourselves. We need to turn these glasses onto ourselves because here we are together. We're gathered. We're singing songs. We're reciting creeds. We're hearing the Bible. First of all, it's easy to get lost in the ritual of these things, to do them week after week without being awestruck and wonder that we have the privilege of worshiping the one true God. But more than that, we need to ask the question that this passage poses to us. Does my life on Monday through Saturday make God hate what I do on Sunday? I think many of us might flinch to answer that question. I, I flinch to answer that question. Do we genuinely think that we need a Savior? Or are we happy to ignore the sin in our lives? That's what Amos was pushing them. That's what he was trying to do. And so he gets even more specific with the people of Israel and what their problem was. And it's the same problem that he's been bringing up again and again through this book. The people are ignoring justice and righteousness. The word but at the beginning of verse 24 is doing a lot of heavy lifting. It's, it's the hinge that opens the gate to a new way of living. It's, it's a new way of being human. It's the hinge to true human flourishing and the way God has called people to. 
He says, what you need is justice and righteousness. Righteousness is the internal quality of rightly seeing ourselves the way that God sees us. It's understanding both our dignity and our depravity. Righteousness understands that we were created as beings of unbelievable beauty and wonder, and yet that beauty and wonder has been wrecked and marred by the sinful choices we've made and by the brokenness of the world around us. The light has gone dim because we've covered it with the gossamer fabric of greed and pitilessness. Righteousness understands this and understands that God has offered us a way forward. Repentance and faith restores our souls and makes a new way for us to proceed with living. And so this begins internally. When he talks about righteous, he's talking about something primarily internal for us, an understanding of who we are. But then what happens is as our lives are truly changed by understanding who we are and what God has done with us, this flows outwardly to the way that we act, and that's justice. When we begin in humility to see ourselves in need of the restorative love of Jesus— it changes the way that we treat other people around us. It begins with us understanding our deep need, but then it translates, it overflows into the way that we see others around us. And that's the problem with the feast of the people of Israel. They exhibited no change in their lives. They didn't understand righteousness, so they couldn't begin to do justice. They didn't see a problem in oppressing their neighbors. They didn't see a problem in enslaving their own kinsmen. They didn't see a problem in using people for their own ends. And all of that started from the fact they could not correctly see that they were sinners in need of the grace of Jesus. There's no saviors if you can't see your problems. And so Amos calls them back to the law. Amos calls them to remember the law of God, not as a mean to climb up and make God happy, not as a list of things to do that will make God like you, but as a map for the blood-washed people of God to direct their lives. The rules and laws of the Old Testament were never uh, a rule book to make God happy. It was a guide for what a life changed and marked by forgiveness and wonder from a covenant God could look like. The people of Israel, even though they had done all the right things, even though they were going to all the right feasts and all the right worship services, hadn't experienced that change. Their lives were just like the lives of the Egyptians who they had been freed from. And so they just tacked on a caricature of worshiping God. And beloved, we can be in danger of the same thing. We can go through the motions of Christianity. We can go through the motions of church without ever experiencing true heart change, without ever experiencing what God offers to us. We can have the appearance of godliness while de uh, denying the true power of it. And when we do, it stinks like sulfur. And so Amos, being a good orator, being a good preacher, begins to wrap up. And he wraps up by reviewing what he's already said. He has covered the stench of false religion, the wrong assumptions that come from a life devoid of the gospel. He hammered home his point about justice and righteousness, and now he comes back to the first two themes. He sort of has climbed the mountain and then is coming back down. The people of Israel have a template for what this looks like. Their history shows them what this could be. He asked the question, 
Do you remember when you were in the wilderness? Did you make sacrifices to me then? This is not about perfection, people of Israel. This is about walking in repentance. Because even if you think back, if you've been around church, if you've maybe been in Sunday school, you might remember some of the stories as the people of Israel were leaving Egypt. They were not great. The golden calf happened while Moses was getting the Ten Commandments on top of the mountain. And then not too long later, they complain about the food that God's giving them. And then not too long after that, they complain to God because they don't like Moses and Aaron anymore. And then not too long after, we could go on. But throughout that time, every time that that would happen, they would repent. They would return to God. They would offer him the sacrifice of a broken spirit and a contrite heart. But this wasn't the story of the people in Amos' day. In fact, he points out that they are living like the oppressive Assyrians by worshiping their gods. Long before the gods of Assyria, or the, the, long before the people of Assyria occupied the land, the gods of Assyria occupied the hearts of Israel. They pretended to worship Yahweh when it was convenient, and as soon as they got home, they would serve the other gods. So God's going to send them off into exile. The day of the Lord is coming, but it's not coming for Assyria. Israel, it's coming for you. Two chapters earlier, Amos has said the lion has roared. And now the people, are think, the people think that they are safe in their homes and the serpent is poised to strike. And the same is true of us. When we try to compartmentalize our faith to just our Sunday mornings, or maybe you add in small groups and church barbecues, but if we aren't seeing our hearts changed by the powerful and unrelenting love of God, if we aren't seeing the heart change that results in a love for the least of these around us, the same snake is rattling its tail, coiled and poised to strike at us. But beloved, the, the snake doesn't get the last word. Um, this week, I stumbled on an Australian biotech company, um, and their name is... Protherics, I think. They're designing new antivenom for rattlesnake wounds. Um, and it's sustainable, um, and it's very easy to harvest. And I can't make this up. It's lamb's blood. The blood of the lamb cures the venom of the snake. It's not just a biotech thing. That's spiritually true of us as well. The blood of the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Realizing our need for that blood begins the renewal of our hearts that leads to righteousness, that leads to justice. The blood of Jesus renews, renews us each time we confess our need for him. So church, let's, let's have some humility. Let's see our need for Jesus. Let's have some courage and cry out for forgiveness. And as we do that all together as a community, as we become people formed by that need, formed by that forgiveness, formed by the justice that flows out of it, we'll see change in our lives as God sends rivers of justice out to those who need it, even in our city. Let's pray. God, forgive us for the ways that our religion, our worship, maybe even this morning, has been hollow and empty. Sometimes, God, it's easy for us to just go through the motions. Sometimes we disconnect our lives 
for the rest of the week and just come in and fake it on Sunday. Lord, would you help us to live whole and integrated lives? That we would be formed by our worship on Sunday and transformed for the rest of our week. Lord, we can't do this on our own. Left to ourselves, we are just like the people of Israel. So we need you. We need you to change us. We need you to renew us. We need you to make us whole. And we are so grateful that you promised to do that through your Holy Spirit. So God, we're asking you to do that in our lives. And as we are transformed, would we be agents of righteousness and justice, caring for those around our city, seeing the needs, meeting the needs, and loving the people that you set before us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.